0: Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, D.O.G. Rob Silver, and we have a jam-packed show today. Today, we will be talking about the fights that occurred Saturday night. They ended about 20 minutes ago. I'm recording this 20 minutes after the Frank Martin fight ended. We'll be talking about Frank Martin and Alicia Baumgartner's wins. Also, I'll be talking about Jermaine Franklin's win on the Detroit undercard of Alicia Baumgartner's win. And, of course, um, the pro debut of Andy Cruz. I will take another extended Q&A session and I will be reading my 18th greatest knockout of all time. But first before we begin the podcast once again i want to plug my patreon podcast and this week if it's not out already it will be out either today or tomorrow but it's supposed to be out as we as you hear this a free patreon exclusive podcast will be on the, the fight game media free feed this week if it's not out already looking at the Life and Times of Muhammad Ali Part 6, I look at the iconic, biggest fight in boxing history, March 8th, 1971, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier. I give you uh, the historical impact of that fight, what was going on in Ali's life at the time, as told to me by my father, who schooled me on Ali's career my entire life, up until when he passed away in 2023 years ago. And I give you a full play by play reenactment of the fight. Um the link will be in the description of that podcast. You can follow along. And that's part six. Parts one through five is only available on the Patreon. And that link is in the is, is in the description of this podcast where for five dollars a month. You will get my entire series when it finally ends—the ten-part series, monthly series of the life and times of Muhammad Ali. Part six, Ali versus Frazier, will be is either available now or will be available sometime this week. Now on to Saturday night's fights. First, we head over to Detroit, Michigan, and we look at the undercard. First. We look at the undercard at the Masonic, Tem- Tem- the Masonic Temple in Detroit, Michigan. The main event was Alicia Baumgartner versus Christina Leonardo, Lin- But before we talk about the baumgartner Leonardo fight, let's talk about the undercard. First fight that uh, I saw was a Jermaine Franklin against I don't know where they got this guy from. This guy had no business being in the ring with anybody. He's undefeated. Who did he beat? Because he looks like a car mechanic. Isaac Munoz. Never heard of him. I don't know where they found him. I don't know who he knows to get a fight against Saginaw, Michigan's own Jermaine Franklin. So Jermaine Franklin was fighting in his backyard. And Jermaine Franklin beat Munoz up from pillar to post. Munoz does have a lot of heart and a great chin because Franklin landed everything he wanted to and beat the hell out of that car mechanic. But Munoz does not belong in the ring with anybody good. All right. I don't know who he beat, but the man looks like a car mechanic and fights uh, like butter, like like a crackhead butterbean. He's horrible, horrible, horrible. Easy win for Jermaine Franklin. Um, now, hopefully, he doesn't fight stiffs like that anymore. What I would really like to see, if you can make it happen, is Jermaine Franklin versus Big Baby Anderson. Big Baby Anderson is fighting a 39 year old bum next month. Just after I said two weeks ago in the podcast that I didn't want to see Anderson fight any more uh, tomato cans, it's time for him to only fight. Uh, contenders, he's back to fighting tomato cans. That can't help your career, ladies and gentlemen. It never helped anybody, other than uh, make your record look better than what it is. Let's, let's 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 get the joke let's get the jokes out the way, please. That's a joke fight, just like Jermaine Franklin's win over Isaac Munoz was a joke fight. Then we had the Olympic legend from Cuba. Andy Cruz make his pro debut, winning a 10-round decision over Juan Carlos Burgos. And Burgos needs to retire. He took a one-sided beating. He's got a great chin. He's never been knocked out. whoopty damn dude! Andy Cruz gave him angles. Andy Cruz won every second of every round to win an easy 10-round decision. Um, It's impressive to have your first pro fight against a grizzled veteran like a one Carlos Burgos. So that's a good start for Andy Cruz. He's 27 years old. His promoter, Eddie Hearn, his management, they want to put him on the fast track. I guess He's he's had years of of amateur experience. And like a Guillermo Rigondeau and a Vasily Lomachenko, no need to play around and put him in with stiff after stiff. They put him in with a grizzled veteran, and you you probably see a few fights like that before he steps up to fight world-class opposition. Juan Carlos Burgos hasn't been world-class in several years. And then we get to the main event. Alicia Baumgartner against... Christina Lina the only woman ever to beat Alicia. Alicia defending her undisputed female super featherweight championship. And I give Lina Dardo credit. She tried hard. Um I had it I had the fight even after two rounds, and then I had Baumgartner sweep the last eight rounds as she outworked, out jabbed, and outpunched Lina Dardo. To get revenge And to uh, Get uh, Get revenge Avenge her only loss And so now Alicia Baumgartner Who I said last week on the podcast Is the second hottest Female boxer in the game The only one hotter Is Clarissa Shield By the way Shout out to Miss Shields She did a hell of a job Commentating With the DAZN clowns This week She is better than Chris Manick Sergio Moron And Todd gruesome all rolled into one she's better than all three combined she did a hell of a job she could have a career in color commentating after her boxing career is over she's that good she's a natural behind the mic and kudos to her she she did a hell of a job now on to the Vegas card um Elvis Rodriguez Beat the hell out of Victor Postol. Stopped him in the seventh round. Postol is washed up. Postol is taking one too many beatings. He was tailor-made for Rodriguez. Rodriguez struggled when he was with Bob Aaron, top rank. He has flourished since coming over to B- PBC and Showtime. And he continues his quest for a championship title opportunity. Um, What was the other fight on the other card? I'm trying to remember. Let me look. There was another fight before. Oh, uh, before that, before. Let's see where 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 is that fight? Uh, looking at the undercard here. All right, I want to make sure I I say his name right. And this guy is six foot two, a uh, six foot two welterweight. I think the last time I saw six foot two welterweight was Paul the Punisher Williams, and that's Fredis Rojas. Beat the hell out of Diego Sanchez before the fight was stopped in the seventh round. He's now 11-0, 11 knockouts. He's got a lot of power, and he's got a ton of potential. We will see what happens with Rojas in the future. He gave Diego Sanchez a beating, and Diego Sanchez is now your typical punching bag and When a guy is about to become a contender He has to beat up Diego Sanchez As a rite of passage Now to the main event Oh and by the way I predicted that Alicia Baumgartner would win By a comfortable 10 round decision And she won by a comfortable 10 round decision Frank Martin In the toughest fight of his career Uh, Let's give His opponent a huge Shout out Huge congratulations to Artham Harritunian Harritunian fought His ass off, gave Frank Martin hell I had Harritunian winning Three of the first five rounds But those first five rounds were very close But Harritunian was pressuring Frank Martin Landing combinations, going to the body And was much more Active than Frank Martin Then in the sixth round, Martin Landed a beautiful counter left cross, not left hook, you stupid motherfucker, Maro Ranallo, Mauro Ranallo, it's not a left hook, a straight left is a left cross, stop making these errors, it's abysmal, anyway, he hurt him with a left cross to the chin, and then later on, he hurt him again with a left to the body, and he overwhelmingly won round six, and it looked like, all right, Frank Barton, he evened up the scorecard on my scorecard, and now he should be able to dominate. No, I had him losing the next three rounds as he went back to being inactive, and kudos to Haratanyan. He came at Frank Martin. He pressured Frank Martin. He out-hustled and out-punched him for the next three rounds. After nine rounds, I had Haritonian up six rounds to three. What was my scorecard? 86. 86- After Nine rounds And I'm sitting there saying You know what Frank Martin needs a knockout Or a knockdown to win Frank Martin stepped it up In the 10th round He staggered Haritunian again Batted him That left cross was working wonders The 11th round He batted him in the last minute of the 11th round In the 12th round the left eye of Harantunian was giving him problems. He was blinking. It was almost shut close. And then with about 50 seconds left in the round, Harantunian took a knee because the eye was hurting so bad he needed that time to recover. Huge knockdown for Frank Martin. The bell rang. My final score was 114-113, which one of the judges had. The other two, two I had a 114-113 Frank Martin. I had Martin. Sweep the last three rounds to win a very, very close scorecard on my scorecard, 114-113. One of the judges agreed with my scorecard, and two of the other judges had a 115-112. A unanimous decision win for Frank Martin. He survives a very scare a very scary opponent. Um you never hurt Martin. Martin hurt Harrington at least three, four times in the fight. But that being said, Harrington took it to Martin, and uh, and after nine rounds he dominated. But then, the last three rounds he was exhausted. He got hurt, and he did everything to survive. But you, you cannot choke. He choked it away. Matter of fact, the scorecards after eight rounds. After eight rounds. Harantunian was up Five rounds to three On two of the scorecards Let me make sure I I get the 86, he was up 86 84, let me see, hold on 87 Let me make sure I get this right He was up 87, 85 I believe, let me get the math right Hold on, 50 Oh no, my bad He was up 77-75 Seventy seventy-seven seventy-five on two scorecards. Okay. He was up seventy-seven seventy-five on two scorecards. Right. And I'm trying to get the other one right because if Martin swept the last four rounds. I'm trying to get this right. Hold on. Let me do the math right. Okay. All right. He was up, because I'm not looking at the scorecards, but I know that uh, Steve Farhood mentioned that all three judges gave Martin the last four rounds. I gave Harrington the ninth and Martin 10 11 12. All three judges gave Martin the ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th. So he was definitely down by two points on two scorecards. And I guess he was down by one point on another score. That doesn't make sense. It would have been six rounds apiece winning the last. Okay. All right. He was down 77-75 on two scorecards and 78-73 on another scorecard. He was way behind. 78-74. He was down 78-74. On one scorecard, seventy-seven, seventy-five. On two scorecards, he was way behind, and he came back and won. And people, people cannot cry robbery in this fight. Harrington choked. If he would have won one of those rounds, actually, if he would have won one of the last four rounds. No, he would have, if he would have split the last four rounds, even with the knockdown, he would have won the decision. But he didn't. Kudos to Frank Martin. He came through in the clutch, but he's got to do a whole lot better next time. Um, but it was a learning experience, and I said, Frank Martin's going to be a great fighter. Let's see what happens when we continue. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. And now on to my Q&A session. All right. Now on to the Q&A session. Q&A portion of the podcast. First question is from Jay. Jay, uh, and, and if you want your questions answered on Twitter, hashtag AskRobSilva. All right. Jay ask, how was New York City around the time David Dinkins first got elected? Jay, New York City was in the midst of a homeless epidemic It was in the midst of a crack epidemic It was in in the midst of probably the highest crime rate The highest murder rate in the history of New York City New York City was in complete turmoil In complete disarray It was a cesspool of violence A cesspool of crack A cesspool of crime Mayor Ed Koch Who had ruled for 12 years Had allowed his Cabinet The members of his administration To rip off the city There was a number of Officials in the Koch administration That were Stealing From the New York City government Stealing Stealing You had corrupt precincts Throughout the New York City You had 24 hour Open market uh, Open drug markets Open air drug markets In several project houses And housing projects Throughout New York City Including the one I grew up in The Millbrook projects in the South Bronx People were tired. People wanted to change. People wanted an end to the madness that New York City became. So Dinkins beat Ed Koch in the Democratic primary, kicked his ass, then went up against Rudy Giuliani, who was the Republican nominee. And Giuliani was preaching tough crime and that he was going to turn things around overnight. Dinkins and Giuliani had a vicious battle. And Dinkins barely beat Giuliani on the eve of 1989 to become the new mayor of New York City. And uh, David Dinkins immediately did his best to try and stem the tide try to bring the crime rate down he reintroduced community policing he instituted programs to try and help crack addicts he instituted programs to try and help the severe homeless problem we had in new york city dinkins did his best and it was dinkins that began to Stem the tide and turn the tide As The crime rate began to go down During his administration Rudy Giuliani takes all the credit In the world He, You would think according to Giuliani and the racist New York Post that it was Giuliani That single handedly turned the city Around no that's bullshit It was David Dinkins that Made the deal with Walt Disney To help Uh, How do you say it Uh, (laughs) uh, Renovate Times Square Times Square had become a huge cesspool Huge cesspool And Dinkins In order to try and Stimulate The economy through tourism Knew that Times Square was always a big Tourist spot But in the late 80s Before Dinkins took over Times Square had become a haven For crack, crack addicts Homeless and prostitution. You can't have tourists walk through Times Square fearing for their lives. So Dinkins made a deal with with, with, with with the Disney Corporation and with other vendors and other businesses to help revitalize Times Square and through his community policing, the crime rate was beginning to go down. You saw a lot of the open-air drug crack Uh, markets, open air drug markets in the housing projects get shut down by Giuliani's, not Giuliani, by Dinkins having community policing because the community police would be walking through the projects and they would tell the crack dealers, you you, you need to go or we're going to arrest you. Dinkins downfall was that the police union hated him. Because too many times he would side against them when it came to police brutality. Dinkins was a fair mayor. Dinkins was a great man. And Dinkins, in my entire lifetime, was the best mayor New York ever had, despite the fact that the media criticized him. And uh, Giuliani had the backing of the police union. And it was the backing of the police union That led Giuliani to barely beating Dinkins the second time in the fall of 93 to become the mayor and the ruler of New York City for eight years in which he, his administration had unprecedented police violence against black and brown people. Ladies and gentlemen, between 1994 and 2000, during Rudy Giuliani's mayoral rule. I was stopped eight times for just walking. I was never in a car because I've never owned a car, right? And I don't even have a driver's license. I'm 55 years old. Every woman I've dated since 1987 owned a car. They were, they've they been basically my chauffeur. But walking, walking to pick up my son from school in my South Bronx neighborhood, walking to my job on 29th ninth Street. At Park Avenue South back then Walking or coming from um, John Jay College where I was attending On 59th Street Between 9th and 10th Avenue I was stopped I was stopped Police, they said my bag was heavy They said they heard that someone uh, Fitting my description Had guns in their bag I said, I don't One time I opened up the bag I said, look, these these are textbooks I'm a college student I'm coming. To, I'm, I'm going to school. I'm coming from school, or I'm walking towards my son's school to pick him up. And the cops would sneer at me, get in the car, and drive off. Or on a couple of occasions, they would follow me, thinking that I was a, I was a gun runner or selling guns. What the fuck? So David Dinkins took over New York at a time when New York was a cesspool, and he did an admirable job. He did a yeoman's job and it took the New York post conservative talk show radio and Rudy Giuliani's racist campaign for him to barely lose to Giuliani in the 93 mayoral election. And unfortunately led to eight years of unprecedented crimes against black and Brown people by the nypd thank you again jay for a great question matter of fact you have a second question so let me answer that right now get that out the way get your two questions out the way here we go you ask from your perspective what made johnny tapia special jay uh i have a personal story concerning johnny tapia first and foremost Johnny Tapia was a man of the people. He witnessed his mother getting raped and murdered when he was eight, nine years old, Uh, and that haunted him for the rest of his life. Uh, He became a drug addict. Matter of fact, he was suspended from boxing for about three years because of drug use. But the man was one of the greatest counter punches I've ever seen. He was one of the greatest boxer punches I've ever seen. He was one of the greatest Mexican-American fighters of all time. He was a tremendous boxer inside the ring. What made him special was, despite his demons, despite his drug addictions, and the last... 15 years of his life before he died at a way too young age he fought those demons he was in and out of rehab almost died a few times before he finally died personal story concerning tappy people could see whenever he was interviewed that he was a beautiful man that people loved him and he reminded my mother And myself of my father Because he had the same type of look in his eye when he was high You could tell if Tapia was high when he was being interviewed He also had The kindness that my father had when he was sober You ever saw Tapia after a fight? When the fight was over, he'd hug and kiss his opponent He'd never have anything bad to say about his opponent after the fight was over He would tell everybody he loved him Reminded me of my father And and his facial expressions His mannerisms, was very similar to my father My father died July 30th 2000 we're coming up on the 23rd anniversary of his death October 7th 2000 Johnny Tapia fought the one man That the only man that had ever beaten him Paulie Ayala in a rematch That night I'm watching the fight with my 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 uh son, my son at the time, was eight years old. We're in the living room, and then my mother walks through the living room and was like, "Oh, that's Johnny. My mother always loved Johnny because she was one of the few, he was one of the few fighters she watched because he reminded her of my father, her husband. Oh, Johnny's fight. So my mother, my son and I sit down and we watch Tapia put on a brilliant display of boxing. 12 round masterpiece where he Boxed Ayala's ears off And When the fight ended my fought, my We were jumping up and down and, and and my mother was like oh I wish I wish Silva was here cause he would have Really loved this Then they read the decision In one of the worst robberies in boxing history Ayala Wins And Tapia is fleeced And my mother Broke down, started crying, and I turned the TV off and I tried to console her, and she was like, Leave me alone. And she went to, <laughs> excuse me, she went to her bedroom sobbing. Him being a man of the people, him being a real dude, is what made Johnny Tapia special, Jay. Thank you for them questions, man. Okay. Rob Hill, Sugar Hill, asked me, if Crawford was to beat Spence and follow up with beating Boots Ennis, where would that put him on the list of all-time great welterweight champs? Top five? He can't make the top five, even if he beats Spence and and Boots Ennis. My, uh, My top five are Kid Gavilan, I'm trying to make sure I get this right. I got Kid Gavilan, Tommy Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, Henry Armstrong, and number one, Sugar. I got Sugar Ray Robinson, number one, Henry Armstrong, number two, Sugar Ray Leonard, number three, Thomas Hearns, number four, and Kid Gavilan, number five. All five of those guys were greater fighters than Errol Spence at welterweight. Henry Armstrong made like 19 consecutive defenses of the welterweight title. Sugar Ray Robinson's the greatest fighter, according to my father, that ever lived. Sugar Ray Leonard beat Roberto Duran, Wilfred Benitez, and Tommy Hearns at welterweight. Tommy Hearns was a destructive force who was dominating Sugar Ray Leonard before Leonard came from behind and stopped him in the 14th round. And Kid Gavilon fought everybody. After Sugar Ray, Leonard, I mean Sugar Ray Robinson moved up to middleweight, Kid Gavilon fought the best of the best for several years throughout the 1950s. Errol Spence doesn't come close to any of those five fighters. Um, Does it make, maybe you could make an argument for top 10, but not top five. And even top 10 is cutting it close because no other division in the history of boxing has a... Oh, but you said Crawford. Either way, whether Crawford beat Spence in Boots or Spence beat Crawford in Ennis, neither man's making the top five because neither man has been dominant like the five I mentioned, hasn't beaten the guys like the five I mentioned. And the welterweight division is is the most storied division in boxing history. Last week's episode, I mentioned all the great welterweights. Felix Trinidad had something like 15 consecutive defenses between 1993 and 1999, okay? Uh, Oscar De La Hoya beat I Cortez and Pernell Whitaker at welterweight. Pernell Whitaker held the welterweight championship of the world for four years from 93 to 97. Trinidad from 93 to 2000. It would be very, and and Floyd dominated the welterweight division from 2006 until when he retired in 2015. So, no, um, neither man can um, make a claim for top five and probably not even top ten. But great question as always, Rob. All right, who's next on this uh, question and answer? Okay, all right, all right. Toot the Barber has a question. Let me make sure before. All right, Toot the... Oh, 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 uh... Jesus, Jesus has a question. Jesus has a question. He goes... What are my top three wrestling families? Well, in no particular order, the Bret Hart family... Bret, of course, being the greatest wrestler I've ever seen. Owen Hart being as, as uh, naturally gifted as any wrestler who ever lived. Stu Hart being a great wrestler in his day and one of the great wrestling trainers of all time. So I got the Hart family. I've got the Samoan family, the Inouye family. You got Roman Reigns right now is the biggest wrestling star since John Cena. It's not even close. Regardless of what so-called experts claim, Roman Reigns is the only guy wrestling today That the general public knows about right, They don't know about anybody from AEW They don't know anybody else from WWE It's Roman Reigns Most worldwide known wrestler since John Cena The Enoa family And of course the Enoa family has the Samoans The Tonga Kid Fatu Samu Yokozuna So yeah I've got to go with The Anoa'i family, and then Devon Ericks, Kerry, Kevin, David, and of course their father Fritz. So, those are my top three wrestling families of all time, in no particular order. Okay, now let's go on to. I believe I got one more question. Let me see. All right, from my boy. the best legendary barber around, took the barber, Philly's finest. He wrote, "The city of Philadelphia should be ashamed of itself for letting a legendary gym, Joe Frazier's gym, become a f- furniture store and not make it a historic landmark." He wanted to know my thoughts. I agree with you a thousand percent, Toot. There was no, there was no reason for this. I hate when um cities do this. Um, kudos to the city of Detroit. They made the Croc Gym a historic landmark, even though for years nobody was inside the Croc Gym. It was, it was uh, rescued, and I believe they're using it now. But for a long time, my understanding was the Croc Gym was vacant. But the city was not going to allow this landmark to be turned into a store. They turned Joe Frazier's gym in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, into a furniture store. That's ridiculous. That's a crime. And the city council of Philadelphia dropped the bag on that. They dropped the ball. They needed to uh preserve that and they didn't. That's ridiculous. And I want to I wanted to tell you one thing. I'm not I'm not sure if you did if you knew this or not. But uh Joe Frazier was so broke when he died that he was living inside his gym. He had a he made a makeshift bedroom in his office. He had lost everything except for the gym. The gym was the only thing he had left. And so he lived and he did everything out of that gym before he unfortunately passed away about a decade ago. So thanks, everybody, for the great questions. If you want to ask me any type of question, look, wrestling, boxing, baseball, football, women, (laughs) movies, music, hashtag ask Rob Silva. Now on my 18th greatest knockout of all time all right for my complete list so far of my greatest knockouts in boxing history you can go to fightgamemedia.com you'll have the entire list of greatest knockouts and this is my number 18th that i wrote on the website two and a half years ago Number 18, Julian Jackson versus Harold Graham, November 24th, 1990, a fight that was held in Benalmádena, Spain. And as I wrote, in my 47 years of watching and studying the sport of boxing, few boxers had a more powerful weapon than Julian Jackson. The native of the Virgin Islands Was not a great boxer or stylist He incorporated no defense whatsoever Into his game plan His strategy was basic Walk you down until he caught you With his atomic bomb of a right cross Harold Graham fought in the golden age Of United Kingdom middleweights Alongside Chris Eubank Nigel Benn Steve Collins and Michael Watson Graham was an excellent technician Inside the ring He didn't do one thing great But he did everything well up until this point of his career, the self-proclaimed British bomber had only lost two extremely close decisions to Mike McCollum and Sumbu Columbay, who were only two of the best middleweights in the world at the time. Graham definitely had the in-ring tools to hand Jackson his second defeat. Jackson's only loss going into this fight was also at the hands of the Jamaican legend McCollum. Unlike Graham, McCollum didn't give McC- Jackson didn't give McCollum much of a fight as he was destroyed in two rounds. For the first three rounds of their battle for the WBC middleweight title that had been vacated almost a year earlier by the iconic Roberto Duran, Graham boxed gratefully and was given Jackson hell. The softball stylist from Great Britain darted in and out while landing combinations at will. At the end of three rounds, the doctor at ringside warned Jackson in his corner that he was dangerously close to stopping the fight as the Virgin Islands slugger's left eye was almost completely shut. Jackson was very similar to Deontay Wilder In that his right hand was such a nuclear weapon That he stalked you until that one moment when he caught you and put you to sleep That strategy was failing miserably throughout the first three rounds As Graham was completely in control Graham, seemingly spurred on on by the damage he caused to Jackson's left eye Began to aggressively go after Jackson in an attempt to finish the wounded slugger off For the first two minutes and 15 seconds of round four, Graham landed one blistering combination after combination. Then, while having Jackson trapped against the ropes, Graham walked into a short right cross that detonated off his jaw, not unlike a nuclear bomb. Graham was already completely unconscious before his head violently bounced off the canvas. Referee Joe Cortez's count of 10 was a mere formality as Graham laid prone for almost five minutes before finally regaining consciousness. My father was totally disgusted after this fight ended. He rightfully criticized Graham in his over eagerness to try and put Jackson away. As my father explained, you don't go after a ravenous dog once you've wounded him. You keep peppering him from the outside until he's completely cooked. Jackson was a one-eyed fighter who, like the dog my father was talking about, couldn't chase you anymore. Had Graham continued to box from the outside, the fight would have been stopped eventually. Graham's one great opportunity to become world champion ended as he unwisely engaged and walked walked into a right-hand missile. Jackson's career began to decline after that one-punch miracle knockout win After successfully defending his title four times Jackson lost his title to rising power puncher Gerald McClellan In the fifth round on May 8th, 1993 Then in the rematch one year later Jackson was destroyed in the first round On March 17th, 1995 Promoter Don King found a stiff from Italy Named Augustino Cardamone To fight Jackson for the title vacated by McClellan Jackson, although 34 and completely shot as a world-class fighter Destroyed the Italian fraud of a contender in two rounds Five months later, Jackson would be pummeled in six rounds by Quincy Taylor Ending his final reign as champion Jackson would finally retire two years later after getting knocked out in his last few fights Graham would lose three of his next eight fights after a shocking loss to Jackson before retiring in 1998 at the age of 39. That knockout to Jackson completely took the steam out of his career. He will forever be known as one of the best British fighters never to win a world title. Like my father felt, if he hadn't been so overzealous overzealous in trying to put Jackson out, his career would have had a different trajectory. A perfect example of would've, could've, should've. Ladies and gentlemen, next week. Oh, before I go, Tuesday, September Tuesday, July twenty fifth, early in the morning, probably six thirty, seven a.m. from Tokyo, Japan, live on ESPN Plus. You have one of the best fights of the year. Tuesday, July twenty fifth, six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. Nayoa and Noe going up against Stephen Fulton, the man at 122 pounds, trying to get the two title belts. Stephen Fulton has at 122. A great fight. I got Inouye winning a close but decisive 12-round decision. Next week's episode, I will review the explosive... No. No. Let me backtrack. I will not review the Inouye Fulton fight next week. Next week, will be totally dedicated to a preview of the Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford superfight. I will give you a complete breakdown. I will give you historical overviews of both their careers. And I will finally, after several months of indecision, make my prediction as to who I think will win the July 29th epic matchup for the undisputed welterweight championship of the world between Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence. I will also have a special guest or two sending in voice notes with their predictions. Two brothers that whose boxing knowledge I thoroughly respect. So next week is totally, totally dedicated to to Errol Spence versus Bud Crawford. The week after, I will give the recap of Crawford Spence and Inouye versus Fulton. Until next week, when we exclusively talk Terrence Crawford versus Errol Spence, I want everybody out there to be blessed and be a blessing. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.